0: Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, an audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a school-based SLP with over 10 years of experience. In each episode, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of the topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. welcome to today's episode of This Speech Life. I can't tell you how excited I am to have Ingrid Owens-Gonzalez with us today to talk about how to support our bilingual communicators. I am so excited to introduce to all of you Ingrid Owens-Gonzalez. I met her, I say that air quotes, through Instagram. I'm so grateful for the Instagram account that she has that I've been following for a while. I've learned so much from her. But for those of you that don't know her, Ingrid Owens-Gonzalez has lived in New Mexico and practiced in New Mexico since 2011. She has a bachelor's degree from New Mexico State University in psychology with a double major in languages and linguistics. And she has a master's degree from the University of Texas at Dallas in communication sciences and disorders. She's been an SLP since the fall of 2011. She's worked in SNFs, in early intervention, but her true passion is in the school setting. She loves working with the K-5 population, but she does have experience with preschool and middle school as well. And before we begin, I'll just report my financial disclosures. I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life. I do receive compensation for this episode from speechtherapypd.com. Ingrid's Financial Disclosures, she's the owner of My Speech Place, LLC. She's also an employee of a public school. Her non-financial disclosures, she's the co-founder of the Bold SLP Collective and the co-host of the Bold SLP Podcast. She's also the co-founder and a lead mentor of the Bilingual Empowerment Through Allied Mentorship Program, also known as Beam SLP Program. She is raising two bilingual and bicultural daughters. I should also note that she will receive an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for appearing on this episode of the podcast. All right, Ingrid, like I said, I'm just so excited that you've agreed to pop on to the podcast and to answer some questions and just chat with us about bilingualism biculturalism i really i connect with you about raising a bilingual bicultural daughter i only have one daughter but my husband speaks native hawaiian and so he's raising her to speak native hawaiian and we're raising her here you know in the mainland with mainstream culture but then also hawaiian culture as well so It's been. I
1: didn't know that about you. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, and I
0: think also too that that's a big reason why I'm so passionate about our bilingual communicators. Is I've shared this before on the podcast, but I think maybe I haven't. But my husband, he went to immersion school, Hawaiian immersion school, from preschool to eighth grade, so everything was in Hawaiian. And then when he got to high school. He didn't really know academic English very well, and so he got put into remedial classes. And so instead of thinking that he was just learning a second language, he thought he was dumb. And still to this day, he you know struggles with some of that mindset, even though he knows, oh wait, I'm not dumb, but there's certain things that I can tell it impacts his confidence. So, and he's one of the smartest guys I know. So anyway, I just, I think that that's why I connect so much with the content that you put out there and the things that you're doing with Beam and so on and so forth. So just thank you so much, Ingrid, for being a part of this.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. So let's just jump right into it. What are three things that we need to know when it comes to supporting our bicultural or our bilingual communicators?
1: I think the very first thing I would say to your listeners is that there are bilingual, multicultural, multilingual learners everywhere all over the world. It's actually the norm in many parts of the world to be bilingual from birth or even in academic settings, like you mentioned your husband's story. So I think the first thing I would say is think of bilingual development as typical development. I think that's kind of like our first hurdle because a lot of the times it's immediately pathologized. The second thing would be uh, to consider linguistic oppression when you consider bilingualism in the U.S. And we can dive deeper into that. (laughs) And then the third one is updating your language. ELD, ELLs, ESL, those are labels that I'm trying to erased out of my practice. And then hopefully we see erased out of documents and literature as we go on in our years. I'm hoping. I was really excited. I saw for the first time in an IEP, the term emerging communicator instead of ELL. (laughs) And I'll dive into it more as we go. But those are the three things I think I would love to share about bilingual learners today.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I love that first point. The norm is to be multilingual. You know, that's
1: yeah, typical cool.
0: development. <laughs> and it's so true. Outside of the US, you know, the countries in Europe, all those children, all those people speak multiple languages because they're so close together. They have to to communicate. So I really loved that point that you made. And now like you said, we are seeing A lot of our students are multilingual or bilingual communicators. It's not just Southern California or the Southern states. We're seeing it even in the Midwest states as well.
1: Right, and I would also like push it a little bit further and say, bring it back down all the way to the brain function. Like acquiring more than one language is an absolutely typical thing for a human being to do, and I. I've noticed through the years that many SLPs don't learn that in school, like how that is supposed to look, how that is supposed to present, how that is supposed to develop just because monolingualism is such a norm in the U.S. Like English monolingualism is so normal that we don't know how to see typical bilingualism as typical at all. Yeah. So that's the first barrier we have.
0: Yeah, I see that. And even it's very true because even I've noticed, you know, talking with different speech therapists in my particular district, and they'll do a home language survey and they'll talk to the parents. Oh, well, does the child's what do you think is their primary language? And they'll just choose that one language and then they'll do their assessment only in that one language, you know, and it's not quite appropriate. Because those students are not truly a monolingual Spanish speaker or truly a monolingual English speaker. And it's hard to even compare bilingual speakers to each other because we might have a student that just moved here from El Salvador two weeks ago who was only speaking Spanish versus a student who has been raised in the U.S. with both parents Speaking in Spanish and Grandma and Grandpa living in the home speaking Spanish, but then they're in class where it's English all day. So you know you can't compare those two students, even though they might be the same age. So yeah, it's really interesting to think about how we need to process what that looks like in the brain to learn two languages at once and to move away maybe from that idea of primary, secondary, and just what that looks like.
1: Yeah, it's the idea of having two monolinguals in one person, right? We often see that a lot out in the real world in practice. They treat the kids as if they were two different people in one brain. But we just are one brain working on two different programs at the same time is how I like to kind of compartmentalize it, I guess, in my own self. <laughs> I have like different chips is what we think about in Spanish, you know, change the chip. But yeah, that I think is one of our major things. We don't get it taught in grad school. We don't get it normalized in grad school. Maybe it's a little like chapter here in the early development class, or maybe it's one takeaway, you know, throwaway slide in an aphasia class, but it's never just typical. Bilingual people exist out in the world and that is okay. There is nothing And learn how it works, right? Here's how it goes. These are the terms. None of that is done. I feel like a lot of us have to go find that out later.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, we might, the things that I've been seeing a lot too is goals that are inappropriate where it's like irregular past tense verbs. Well, that doesn't exist in Spanish, or certain sounds, you know, that don't exist in Spanish, like the sh sound. I don't know how that translates through a podcast or the TH sound.
1: I think you're going too far, Caitlin. If you don't know that these differences exist, then you don't even know to ask the question.
0: Mm.
1: I think a lot of SLPs are graduating and they don't even know to ask the question of, you know, how does their other language impact the English performance? Because the reality is that they are going to be judged on their English performance. And that's kind of moving on to point two, right? You can't separate the history of linguistic oppression in our country, the history of centering English only, of parents sending their kids to school to learn English, and then keeping their heritage language only in the home, or even going a step further, and completely eradicating a home language in order to assimilate and losing a language completely within one generation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know that that's a big issue in Hawaiian culture was the colonists came over and it was English only. And then they went by their Hawaiian names in the home, but then you had your English name out in the world. And then in the 80s, there was a big... You know, revival of Hawaiian culture, hence why my husband, who was born in 1987, went to Hawaiian immersion school. And he's the only person in his family that speaks Hawaiian. So, and he's very proud of that. And his family is very proud of that too. And he's hoping, you know, our daughter will carry on that legacy as well. But that's a really good point. And I know that we had Dr. Faye Murray on the podcast talking about bilingual communicators. And she works with the Navajo population in Arizona. And so I know that, you know, indigenous people really do have that oppression. And I know with my own family, thinking about them as well, my mom was pseudo adopted by a Mexican family and none of my family speaks Spanish. My brother does, but that's because he majored in Spanish and went and took a year and worked in Argentina and wanted to learn the language, but he's white. He doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily his true heritage. So that's a really great point that you bring up about this linguistic oppression. And I think it's a great question for us to reflect on as those of us who are working and teaching communication. You know, how do we uphold the heritage language, even if we don't speak the heritage language?
1: Right. And we see it the most with populations that we serve. So students with autism, I mean, just 20 years ago, they were saying it was impossible for them to even be bilingual or students with Down syndrome. It was very, very quick recommendation of, oh, look how well they're doing in preschool where they're speaking words, they're following directions, we're using visual schedules, we're using AAC. All day long, English, 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 having great interventions, fantastic, you know, specially designed instruction. But these kids are not connecting with their families. And now we have parents who are like, I guess I'm going to have to learn English because my kid is thriving here at school. And then at home, he won't speak to me. I've seen it over and over again. And I have to be the one to be like, Don't give up. Come see what I'm doing with them. Come see what the teacher is doing with them. Ask for an interpreter and don't give up on your home language. And if I'm not there, I see it over and over again. Kids who grow and they speak English and their parents don't speak English. And how how is that possible? It's linguistic oppression. And there's a lot of studies out there too about how their peers what language their peers speak makes a huge difference with the child. And so if they're all around English speakers all the time, it's not a surprise that they pick up English so easily. And then Spanish goes by the wayside and often the family or any language really gets blamed for it. And then they're just like, Oh, well they don't even speak it that well. So forget about it. Yeah.
0: I've seen that. I hear it
1: all the time.
0: Yeah, I've seen that my previous district there was a parent that asked me, you know, well, I know that my child has a hard time speaking. Should I still keep trying to teach them Spanish because grandma is the one that really does the caretaking of him and she only speaks Spanish. And I said absolutely. He can learn both languages. He has the capacity to learn. You know, I'll do what I can. I have basic vocabulary and that's about it. That we can incorporate and I like to incorporate you know bilingual books and things just more from the standpoint of I want students to connect with what they see and I want them to feel good about who they are about their families you know feel good about where they've come from but now I mean I wasn't even thinking about linguistic oppression bringing in some of those fun bilingual books for elementary
1: I mean the kids know Caitlin I remember being a kid and realizing oh English good Spanish bad. Mm. (laughs) Very quickly, just by little things adults would do around me. And I spent, you know, six months being a second grader in a classroom where I wasn't allowed to speak Spanish while I was learning English and just sitting there like completely confused every day, all day, but realizing very quickly, like this person does not want me to speak Spanish here. Kids pick up on it really, really quickly. They pick up on how English is valued over anything else.
0: I know that I usually ask these questions a little bit later on, but I feel like it's appropriate right now. For those that are monolingual that do not want to be linguistic oppressors, what are some strategies or some ideas that you have for us?
1: I think just like acknowledging that other languages exist. Just acknowledging that it's okay. And I have a very extreme example on my personal. You know, this teacher literally would discipline me as if I broke a rule if I spoke Spanish. That's really extreme. But now maybe there's a teacher who might misunderstand you and tell you, oh, don't say that word. That's a bad thing to say. Just because you were saying something in your own language that sounds a little naughty in English, instead of digging deeper, and it happens. All the time to kids in are in my orbit, you know, I have kids in my school who speak Spanish, who speak Navajo, who speak English, and it happens all the time that they say something and it may sound like a bad word in English, and it's just funny to them and they play with it and if I didn't know spanish, i and I've seen other adults react I'm like, oh no, no, that's not what they're talking about. just like questioning, stopping to question like, oh, This is something about their home, but just acknowledging that there's other realities. There's other ways of being other than just speaking English and acknowledging the history. Like there are families who have come here to keep their children safe and taking Spanish away from them is just another step they took to keep them safe, you know? And so maybe they have a parent who speaks some English and then a kid who speaks no Spanish. And we're very quick to judge how hard it is to raise bilingual kids when we have all the tools, let alone when we're struggling. So just acknowledging and then kind of keeping, I don't know, the judgment to a minimum because it's hard. It, have, I mean, you know, now you have a kid. It is so hard to fight against the dominant mainstream culture.
0: Absolutely,
1: And not that there's anything wrong with it. It just takes over and you have to work extra hard to Keep your own home culture alive against it, so it's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work. You
0: know, I think you made a really good point about that, you know, keeping our judgment in check and not recognizing where these families come from. I worked previously at a clinic and I got really close to this Spanish speaking family, mom only spoke Spanish. I speak. Very little Spanish, but the awesome thing about the clinic and this particular insurance provider was they provided interpreters for our sessions. So I did develop a really good relationship with this family and mom shared, we, he started kindergarten this year and mom shared her IEP process. And she said, you know, Miss Caitlin, these people think I'm dumb because I don't speak English. How can I show them I'm not? And I said, just keep fighting. You know, I don't know what to tell you. You just have to keep fighting and you have to let them know. So her sister came along with her to, I think it was her sister or her sister-in-law to the IEP and her sister speaks English and her sister told her everything that was said in English that didn't get interpreted. It was heartbreaking. I feel so bad for this family because she said it's, you know, it's mortifying for me to have to sit with these people who think I'm not smart or that I don't care or that I'm lazy because I haven't learned English. And I, you know, I can say the same thing. Well, I haven't learned Spanish yet. You know, I live in Southern California. Like there are restaurants where I live, where there's only Spanish on the menus and I could walk in and I could walk in and get by. Right. But that's like the typical American going anywhere.
1: You haven't had to Yeah, yet.
0: exactly. Right. And so it's just, I just feel for our families. And that point that you made of check your bias, check your judgment, really get real with yourself about what it is you think about the people you're serving.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking. I'm like, I wish I had like a clear cut, do this to make kids not (laughs) want to speak English around you (laughs) or feel safe enough to try and use all of their linguistic repertoire, right? And I think that's it. I mean, Play around with all kinds of materials that have all kinds of languages in there. Like, just make it normal for people. And of course, it's easy for me being bilingual, but you said put yourself in a monolingual shoe <laughs> perspective. I'm like, on mon- that's when you were talking about your husband having some insecurity around his language. I'm really bad at English idioms. Oh, people don't always remember. I didn't grow up here. I. I grew up in Mexico. I was born here, but then I was I spent most of my time in Mexico and I didn't come to the US like permanently for a long time until I was 16. So I was in California for 2 years, a part of second grade, third and fourth. And that was it. And so I don't get a lot of the idioms right. I'm always like self-conscious when I use figurative language. I'm like, "Ah, I think I messed that one up." But Yes. And my
0: uncle. Check your judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you were talking about it and sharing about how students know, they pick up on, on what's going on. And so I thought, okay, well then I need to check my bias, you know, at the door, or I need to check in and really get real about how I feel when I hear a different language around me, you know, how do I feel? And not just at school, because I think we're really good about, pretending that we're unbiased at school but then how do we feel we're at the grocery store or how do we feel if there is somebody in front of us taking up our time you know checking out at the grocery store and there's a language barrier you know do we find ourselves being annoyed and that might be a good check thinking about how we view other languages and how we view a hierarchy of other languages right
1: I I thought of one finally as we were talking One good example and one actionable thing that I bring up all the time, when you're transcribing English, why is your R the right side up instead of upside down? And for your listeners, if they don't know, the upside down R is the R that represents the R that we use in English, like in red and all of that. The R that is right side up is a Spanish R. (laughs) And it's not just a Spanish R, I shouldn't say that. It's the Trill R that's used in a lot of languages all over the world. But the U.S. decided, forget that IPA. I'm not turning my R's upside down all the time because this is America and we speak English. And all over the place, it's taught that the R is right side up. It's in textbooks. It's in our handouts because it's easy to print. And whenever I have to transcribe things and... Spanish and English, I have to be mindful. That's a different kind of R. But when you've never had to deal with it, it doesn't matter to you. All you do is transcriptions in English. You never have to transcribe in Spanish or in French or in any other language that actually uses that symbol. So you use the wrong symbol because it's convenient. And that attitude is what is felt, I think, if that makes any better sense. (laughs) I'm like, so. So turn your R upside down. That's something you can do to be more mindful to other languages of the world and other SLPs who are not monolingual.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I didn't know that. So now I am going to totally transcribe appropriately. Yeah,
1: look into it. It's really interesting. I didn't know that from grad school. I had to learn it the hard way (laughs) whenever I graduated and I had to transcribe. Spanish speakers, you know, my little CF self. I'm trying to think. We didn't have the Goldman First Stone Spanish yet. We had the CPAC Spanish. And I'm like, wait, which R is which R? (laughs) You know, Perro is not the same. You know, that R, that trill R, is not the same as the English R, like in red or butter. Like, it's not the same. And then, of course, we have all those vocalic Rs. We have to add the little you know, R-controlled thing to the vowel, those are different. Uh, we respect those, but the R's from other languages, no.
0: Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. That reminds me of something that just happened today. I was teaching R placement with a group of students. And this little boy said, my tongue doesn't do that when I make the R. And I said, okay, can you make the R for me? I'm curious. What does your tongue do? He did the trill R. He's right. His tongue doesn't do that. And I said, you're 100% right. Your tongue does not do that when you say the R like that. And I was like, why don't you teach them? Teach them how to say the R like you.
1: And so he did. Are they Spanish he speakers? Was.
0: The one who did the oh, trill R yeah. was a Spanish speaking student.
1: Yeah. And we have the other R in Spanish. That's like our English flap, like in Pero. Mm-hmm. It's more like it's not a full right. R and that's not upside down little hook symbol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's different Rs. In Spanish and there's different R's in English and they don't overlap. Right.
0: So that was fun for him to teach that. And I said, okay, you know, teach us about the Spanish R. And so he did. So that was, and I guess those are examples too of letting students know this is okay.
1: Yeah. Show us how you do it. Yeah. But that vibe of like, oh, I've never had to think about that. Then it's more convenient for me not to worry about it. I think that's the thing we need to like root out of ourselves. Mm,
0: I like that. I like that. Looking for, you know, what are we seeing as the dominance? Why are we making the decisions we're making?
1: And it's not, I like that example because we didn't make the books, Right. right? We didn't teach the courses that we enrolled in. Like we just paid a grad school program and we hope we were getting the best information. And now here, We are years later learning that they didn't teach us everything and we can't dwell on it. can't go back there. All we can do is take it in and move forward.
0: And that's why we do, you know, things like the podcasts and why we do continuing education so that we can continue to build on that and learn from that. Yeah, it's been 11 years and I am learning something new still every day, you know, like you said. Every day. So thank you for that. All right. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we move off of linguistic oppression?
1: No, I'd like to shamelessly plug our podcast because that's all we talk about. (laughs) I love Lisa's perspective on this because she's from Canada and the language dynamics there are different. uh, And I think that's really interesting for American people to listen to how the dominant culture where she lives is French speaking, like Francophones, and how that even shows up in different dynamics too. So it's not just English and it's not just American. Is any type of like this is the culture, this is where you need to box yourself in. Anything other is out. I love learning from Lisa about that and then from my other partner co-host Desi, I love hearing how she felt the school system like broke her relationship to her culture, to her Spanish heritage. Like she got to high school and she's like I'm done. I don't want to take any more Spanish classes. I don't want to speak any more Spanish. Like I'm so done with this. Like the repercussions on a typically developing child were that harmful and hurtful to her. And just like imagine what it's like for our kids who have disabilities, language disabilities. So yeah, that's all I wanted to kind of plug in there at the end. I love hearing and learning from them.
0: Absolutely. And I do as well. So definitely check out their podcast, The Bold SLP Collective. You can find them, I listen to them on Spotify. Where are some other places that they can, are you guys on iTunes or?
1: Yeah, we're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. If you like to listen on your computer, we're on Anchor as well. So you can kind of check us out, the Bold SLP podcast. Yes.
0: All right. And then your last point that you made was updating your language. So we're no longer using terms or we're trying, those of us, this might be the first time they've heard that. Terms like yes. English language learner, English ELD. I can't remember what ELD
1: stands for. And it's not just the terms, too. It's just referring to a kit as that. Mm. That's an ESL kit. Mm. Mm. You know, like just the way that we use the terms. So it would be English is a second language, ESL, English language development, ELD, and then ELL, English language learner, which they all got better, you know. <laughs> They keep getting better. <laughs> but I've heard emerging communicator or emerging bilingual, which sounds so much better, you know, and decenters the English only, because I find that that's where we get in the weeds a lot when we're like, well, they need to learn English. Otherwise, how are they going to get to this? Or how are they going to get to that? And it's like, that's not your job. You're not an English teacher. That's not our job. We're not English teachers. And I'm talking to myself like in early intervention settings and in preschool settings. And then eventually it gets really sad in high school when they're like, you're literally upholding all those stereotypes. Well, they're going to have to write essays in college and they're going to have to sound a certain way. And we get into those kinds of conversations as we go along. And it's like, that's not a disability. Not sounding white is not a disability. It may be a social disadvantage because we live in this world that upholds certain standards as the best standards, but it's not our job. It's not pathology and it's not science and it's wrong.
0: It is wrong. You know, it absolutely is wrong to, which goes back to getting these IEPs on my desk that the goals are inappropriate. Those things don't exist in Spanish or they don't exist in Hmong or they don't exist in Samoan, some of the different Mm -hmm. languages that we have in my current district. And the Mm -hmm. reason why it's wrong is because it's not a disorder. These kids are going to think something is wrong with them when nothing is wrong with them. And like, it's just, it's interesting because I, yes, it does take more work on our part to dig deeper and to understand the structures within the heritage language and to, but the resources are out there. ASHA has plenty of information on their portal that you can look up a bunch of different phonetic inventories. You can look up parts of speech. I mean, you can really dive deep into the different parts of languages. The information is out there. You can find it. But it's interesting to me that we're qualifying these kids when we also scream about how big our caseloads are. And these kids
1: shouldn't be on
0: our caseloads, you know? And I don't know. I really enjoy assessing me as a monolingual. And I know it sounds crazy, but I really enjoy assessing my bilingual kids because I can do dynamic assessment with them. I can. It takes me out of that standard score box that I hate so much that doesn't tell us anything. And I can really get to the heart of what these kids need. And a lot of times, yes, there are times that we have bilingual kids that do have a language disorder. It happens.
1: We, I know. I talk about that pendulum all the time. I'm like, don't let it swing the other direction because then people get scared and they're like, okay, then no bilingual kid can qualify. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what I said. Right.
0: Right. My previous district. Oh my goodness. My previous district, our special ed director was under the assumption that no bilingual kid should have speech services.
1: Yeah, the and pediatricians are there right now. In medicine, I feel like the pendulum swings really slow, and there for a while they were referring everybody to early intervention. And then now they're just like, oh, 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 wait. If I had a dollar for every time a parent's like, well, The doctor said, because we're bilingual, I probably shouldn't worry and not call early intervention. Literally, because they're bilingual, they're a late talker. Right.
0: Because I've also heard that too. Like the clinic that I was previously working at, you know, the parents would say, oh, well, the silent period. Oh, well, that we were told about the silent period. And I was like, no, if you have- You know what
1: that's about, Caitlin? That's about kids like me who come in- later in their academic careers. When I came into the US, I was in the middle of second grade. I was already reading and writing in Spanish. I was already doing math, all that stuff. I'd gone to, we call it kindergarten, but we do kindergarten year one and two. Like we don't have preschool. I had already done kindergarten one and two, first grade and half of second grade in Mexico. So I come, everything's in English. I have a silent period. (laughs) That's what they're referring to. And even now there's stuff coming out about that silent period that it's maybe not as cut and dry as people used to think it was. Cause they used to like have like actual like year ranges of how much it took people to like start talking. Well, that's very dynamic. Like I would talk to my friends more than I would talk to my teachers. Like I would talk to, certain teachers more than other teachers, you know, like in PE, maybe more open, less complicated, like vocabulary that you can see, or that is shared more than like during a science lesson. Like it's all very dynamic and complex, but that's what they're referring to when they're telling a two-year-old's mom that there's a silent period. It has nothing to do with A toddler's language development in a home where they speak English and Spanish or, like you said, another language and English.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, thank you for that clarification, because I've even heard it among our therapists, too, not being sure what that silent period is. So I really appreciated the clarification that you gave of you were speaking and then you were dropped in a language you didn't know and you were not speaking and then you started speaking again.
1: That's I think where the research comes from. If you're on Instagram, uh, you need to follow Dr. Jose Medina. He is an educator. He's from El Paso. That's where my parents live. El Paso, Texas. And he's so animated in his workshops and stuff. I one day hope that we can get him over here to my school district. But he talks about all of those things and how that research area has developed through the years. But yeah, we have to go get that information from other research areas because we're not doing it. Very few people are doing research on that topic in our field. So that comes from the field of education. Awesome.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Jose is. Awesome. I've also learned so much from him too on Instagram as well. So, thank you for sharing him as a resource. All right. So, updating our language, which I think also goes back to your second point a little bit that idea of linguistic oppression. Because if we're treating bilingual communicators or emerging bilingual communicators with respect, that's also going to be conveyed to the student as well. So, I really appreciate you giving us that information as well. What are your two resources that you have for us?
1: I'm going to be a little controversial, but one of them is yourself.
0: Mm.
1: Like, check in, unlearn, relearn. What do you need to learn again or learn more about? I think a lo- I've talked about it a lot in our, on a podcast about how I feel like grad school tries to beat any ounce of critical thinking out of us <laughs> a lot of the times just to meet the curriculum. I especially refer back to my experience in assessment, how I was trained in assessment, how the focus was all on like the statistics and how assessments are developed. And, you know, I feel like every ounce of critical thinking I had when I asked the question, how does this apply to a Mexican girl coming in, you know, say at six, you know, seven years old, you know, just trying to figure out how this would apply to me. And I imagine like, how many people who come into our field and they realize none of this stuff applies to me. None of this applies to my community. And they're stifled. You can't ask questions. You know, you can't. I remember getting in so much trouble in that class just for asking questions. So I think reigniting yourself, that critical thinking piece that you have if you feel like it's been stifled to look beyond the measures that you've been taught are, you know, EVP. We love to throw that out. Just yourself, remember that there's other pieces of that EVP cycle and you are in there. You know, our critical thinking, our clinician experiences are in there.
0: Absolutely.
1: The PLS is not in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think that's why once I started learning about dynamic assessment It really changed the way I looked at all of my students, not just my bilingual communicators. And I think that's why I had more fun. I also learned that, and this is a big soapbox that I'm on, is why the assessments were created. They were not created to help derive goals. The assessments were created that the majority of kids who had a language disorder would miss you know, this about pronouns, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to work on pronouns. It's just they would miss these stimulus items on the assessment. And so I think I really like the point you made about using our, our critical thinking skills about looking beyond the standard scores, looking at what is gonna be the most functional and really thinking holistically about the kids and the families that we're working with.
1: Because that's really what we need. That's valid evidence.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean You know, that is evidence-based practice is looking holistically because we've all learned that carryover is the most important thing for a child to generalize. You know, that's what we're hoping for, is that carryover, that generalization Mm -hmm. of the skill. But
1: and that buy-in from the caregivers. Yes,
0: and the teachers. And you know, that's something that is so important that we need to be working with our bilingual families. We can't let a language barrier get in the way. We need to find an interpreter. We need to make sure that we're making that connection with them.
1: Yeah, I agree. And then my second resource is Instagram. Yes. (laughs) Go out there and connect with every bilingual SLP you can find. Literally just type in bilingual SLP because most of us are bilingual and bicultural. And that ties into all the things that we talked about today. I talk about it all the time. How unapologetically loud I am about advocating for these kids is because I was one of these kids. And I could have very easily been put on a track and kept away from experiences or my peers if they called, or like your husband, if they made me feel like I wasn't smart instead of valuing my bilingualism. So I think connect with all of us who have kind of these different lived experiences and bring in this other layer, because a lot of the times our language is so tied into our culture. And maybe you'll understand a little bit more why it's so important and so emotional and just salient to some of us therapists who are bilingual. There's not a lot of us. So I bet you if they type in bilingual SLP on Instagram, there's most of us will pop in there. But yeah, I think people have great Resources that are bilingual. People have great things that are free all the time about uh, cultural humility, about linguistic diversity. I don't do a lot of resource making. I'm not that creative, but on my page, you'll see a lot of advocacy and perspective and even like policy type of stuff, like what's Asha saying about certain things. And I think that's all important to be in the know about. Bilingual SLPs on Instagram and Yourself.
0: Absolutely.
1: Hopefully that's okay. It's not anything you can go by. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, free resources are the best resources, in my opinion. And just to note if you are monolingual and white, you know, the bilingual SLPs that are on Instagram are happy to share, but we are not entitled to their information and to their experiences. I think that that's something that is important to know. Just you know, be happy to learn. Don't demand information, maybe,
1: yeah, Go to my page, my speech blend. the first thing that I have pinned is a document that like thirty of us put together in the summer of twenty twenty one and it's how many bilingual SLps there are, and that was from data from twenty twenty, so it was about fourteen thousand and then there's some resources on that secure cell post there's some Books and resources where you can start. And then right there, how can you support bilingual SLPs? And like Caitlin po- pointed out, like, yeah, we put out a lot of free stuff or have things that people make. Like, I'm thinking of Bilingual Speechy right now. She's coming out with her cards, articulation cards that have cognates. And I'm like, how brilliant is that? Like, you get. So much bang for your buck, working on words that have similar sounds in English and Spanish and similar meanings. Like There's brilliant people out there doing great things. But one of the things on that carousel is how important it is to pay people for their time. So all of us, many of us have our own consulting, everything, fees and stuff. So we're out there, just how you reach out to people to consult on AAC and normalize the practice of reaching out to a bilingual SLP when you have a question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so, so important, especially if you have, you know, like you said, you can use yourself as a resource and look up the information. And if you're still not feeling comfortable about assessing a child that is a Spanish speaker, I know a lot of the bilingual SLPs are Spanish speakers, but not all of them. Some of them speak other languages as well.
1: Yeah, you can see all that demographic breakdown. I'm actually waiting for ASHA to release the 2022 breakdown. Like I watch it, I'm like it's coming. When's the 2022 stuff coming out? But they break it down, like what languages are represented and all of that. And of course, just the nature of our demographics in our country, Spanish is uh, represented pretty majorly in our bilingual world, but that's even more... Argument for why we all need to get better at these things. Uh, Even bilingual SLPs will come across a student who doesn't speak. I come across students who don't speak Spanish all the time. And that's my language. You know, I still need to know how to work with an interpreter. I still need to know how to do these things that you were saying, like digging into the Asha uh, linguistic repertoires of different languages. Things come up all the time. And even within my own culture, I'm Mexican American from Northern. Mexico, and there's different dialects spoken in Mexico, and I need to be aware of those different dialects. Or if I get a student from Puerto Rico, I need to be aware of that dialect. Like, there's work to be done for all of us. And then I'm not particularly territorial about, like, I do all the Spanish things, but Asha does tell us that that's the standard, right? The gold standard of care if you can find an SLP who speaks the language. And then the next best thing is an interpreter. And then after that is like using a family or someone who can help you. That's not available at all, but really being careful and providing access with an interpreter, I would say always. But you may find that some SLPs are territorial (laughs) and you have to kind of break through that because we go through a lot being bilingual, bicultural, being the only ones in a lot of the places that we go to a lot of my peers get dumped on a lot. And a lot of my peers are like, oh, you're the bilingual. And white monolinguals with peers are like, okay, you handle all the people then. And they wash their hands of any sort of care of patients, clients, students who are not English speaking. So it's kind of hard for me whenever I advocate, I'm like, oh, but then I think of all the, I try to think of all the facets and scenarios because I've been on all those ends of like, okay, well, you do all of them. And it's really overwhelming. And then I feel like it takes some responsibility away from the monolingual SLP and it's heavy and you don't know why it feels heavy. But yeah, that's why I'm like, you're your best resource. You do better within yourself. And
0: yeah, I mean, we could get into a whole nother ethical conversation, I'm sure. Because as you were speaking, I was thinking about, well, you know, we know, like you said, about advocating that an SLP that speaks the language and who is supporting the language, you know, is the next best thing. But if we have an SLP that is a linguistic oppressor, they shouldn't be working with that student whatsoever. But then they also need to work with all their students on their caseload. So right. that's,
1: it's so hard. that's really
0: tough. That's a tough conversation, you know?
1: So I think we're just having the conversation, being open, like in my placement, I do handle all the Spanish speaking evaluations. And that's a conversation that I've had with all the people who have like been my supervisor. And I never like felt the need to say like, Oh, I'll handle all the multilingual. You know, there has been people in the past that have moved into our district and they're maybe speak, I think it was Haitian Creole and at the time I was like so overloaded with my Spanish evals that I think they did end up uh, hiring someone to come in like as a contract to evaluate that student. So that's why I mean, like consider it being a moving thing. It's not like I do all the Spanish and you never do this and realize why you have the resource. Like there's more Spanish speakers. So there's more Spanish speaking SLPs. That doesn't mean all Spanish speaking SLPs are the only ones that are supposed to be doing any sort of bilingual evaluation. And that's what's happening. A lot of monolingual SLPs are just like, okay, this person speaks French here. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, no. And it's really hard to balance it. I don't know why they make it so complicated, Caitlin. I don't
0: (laughs) don't either. And I guess, you know, it's different personalities because I'm seeing the same thing even with AAC assessment. You know, that's within everyone's scope of practice as a speech language pathologist. You don't have to get a separate degree. There is, I know you can, at least in California, Cal State Northridge has a master's program for assistive technology and assistive communication that you can get. But you don't need that to do an AAC evaluation. And we're still seeing that too, where, oh, well, she's done them. She can just do the AAC evaluation.
1: I love that example because that kind of takes the culture and you know, social society thing, talk out of it. It's exactly like yeah. that. <laughs> where you've never had to do it. Like say if you were, I don't know, in a middle school, maybe you've never had to do an AAC L, then you think that you shouldn't have to, and you shouldn't have to learn how to do it or support a student. And I guess it is like you said, it's like a comfort level. Like, are you willing to put in the time to learn how to do it or tell your job, I can't do it, get someone to do it? I don't, know. I don't know
0: either. It's harder for sure than a straightforward, just monolingual. Let me just give you these two language assessments and a Goldman Frisco, and call mm-hmm. it a day, you know, and observe you in class and call it a day. But I don't know. That's not fun.
1: <laughs> you know, maybe it is a personality thing because I was spoiled in my placement with our preschool being so awesome. Most of my kids, when they, Came to me, they already had AAC devices. So I've known how to work on them and, you know, the principles of using it and different kinds. But after COVID, it was the first time I've ever had to do an eval because they'd already done it in preschool for me. And my immediate was like, call the rep, get on the Zoom. Figure right. It like, you know, and reach out to, because we do have like an AT person in the district, but. It's pretty much like guidance and more like technology-wise, like less the pathology, speech pathology part of it to figure out technology stuff. But yeah, in my brain, I'm like, get on it. So there I was with the teacher on Zoom with the reps trying to learn different systems. And can I get samples and can I get a free thing to try it out here and there? Like my brain immediately went to like, well, I got to do it now because they're here. So maybe it is a personality thing. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale?
0: You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical, win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate level credits. I don't know, I mean, comfort level, I think you said comfort level and I like that a little bit better. Yeah, then like something being innate with us. But like a comfort level is like, I'm trying to put myself back in that place of like, the first time I had to do an evaluation in grad school, like, yeah, there's a comfort level there, right? Like, like, I was uncomfortable with it. I didn't know what I was doing. And I think there is some of that imposter syndrome. You know, if you graduated school 15 years ago, and there wasn't even we didn't have any class when I graduated grad school.
1: I was just thinking about that. The iPad was invented in the middle of my grad school. And yeah. I remember vividly because I'd just gotten a BlackBerry and I felt so cool because <laughs> I finally had the BlackBerry and I had like email capabilities, you know, for all the kids, please laugh. Yes. And I was like, man, now Apple's coming out with this iPad thing. And I'm just like getting a BlackBerry and everybody was all about the iPad and the iPhone. Suddenly I'm like, I just got my BlackBerry. Like what is happening?
0: Right, right. So, I mean, it's like the, for sure the last couple of years, I have not felt comfortable with AAC. And I feel like just now I'm starting to feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing. If I'm to get an AAC
1: eval, mm-hmm. I mean. That's where I'm not. You know, but. So I'm really glad you brought that up because it was like that. I was like, whoa, suddenly. And I did. I reached out also to someone on Instagram. Yeah. I literally put it on my stories. I was like, if anyone has the bandwidth today, can we zoom? Because I had just gotten a rejection from an insurance thing after working on an eval and on an application for months. And I was I literally made the mistake of opening that on a Sunday morning. And I put it on Instagram. I'm like, if anyone has any bandwidth and knows about AAC and insurance, like, can you DM me? And someone dm me right away, Emily.
0: Yes. Oh, she's amazing.
1: And she directed me to the quick talker and like explained to me, like maybe what happened with the previous thing that I'd done. And I was like, such an amateur mistake that I had made of not running a benefits check before completing a whole application. <laughs> now that I think about it, that I've done some, you know, in the last three years since COVID, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. But I did. I didn't know. I just, I didn't know. So, Yeah, I've been there too. So maybe that'll be encouraging to people who are like, what do I do with multilingual people or bilingual learners? And it's like, just try. Try
0: and reach out. And I think that's the thing that maybe at this point in our society, our culture is that I think for me, sometimes I'm like, oh man, I'm afraid to like say something or try something because I know I'm coming from a privileged place. I know I'm coming from the dominant culture And I don't want to offend, but I think there's a way to ask questions humbly and with humility in a way that, and also accept like, Hey, you know, Ingrid's going to let me know, like, no, that's not quite the right way to think about that.
1: I was going to say, that's what matters more. Like, why are you so worried about sounding a certain way? Mm. You know, if you know that within you, it's not true, then go out there and try. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and also be open to that that pushback that you're going to get, or that education that you're going to get mm-hmm. from the people you're requesting information from.
1: Hmm. Just say yeah.
0: It. <laughs> All right, Ingrid. Do you have one final strategy for us that we can start using tomorrow with our bilingual communicators?
1: I want to say I hate to copy you, but like looking beyond the standard scores, mm. looking beyond. And it's not just like our assessments. These kids get tracked and assessed and placed from the get go. A lot of our bilingual learners, I know right away they get proficiency screening done right away. And that decides whether they go into these tracks of, you know, are am I an English language learner? Am I not? And then they keep getting assessed every year to see how their proficiency has grown. Some states even Get assessed in the home language. I know they do that here for Spanish and Navajo here in New Mexico to see how their Spanish and Navajo is growing as they grow. They're constantly being tested. They're tested on their literacy, they're tested on their math, and we test them. And they're always tested, tested, tested. I would say look beyond all those tests that are just a snapshot and see what the whole open is looking like for you, especially from our perspective where. Like you said, Caitlin, we're finding disorders and a lot of times labeling children with disabilities. So we need to be extra careful of misidentifying. So just stepping outside of your standard box. Is that a strategy? Yeah,
0: I think so. I like it. I like that. I've just, I really like that idea of what you said because I was thinking just in terms of our our lane, our speech and language lane, right? But the previous episode that I just recorded, was with Brittany Frieden about SST process and how we need to be a part of the SST process because we're bringing our lens and we're looking at educational barriers that teachers make.
1: Is that like RTI?
0: Yeah. RTI, MTSS, SST. Like- oh, okay.
1: Yeah. We have MLSS. Okay. There. Multi-layered system of support.
0: Yeah. So that same process, you know, and so she was saying how as SLPs, we need to be a part of that process because we can identify barriers that are really quick fixes for teachers. You know, we can identify, oh, we just, what if we expand on that sentence that the child gave, or what if we use more declarative language versus asking questions or different things that we know as SLPs that the teachers haven't necessarily been taught especially when we look at background knowledge. Can we go through background knowledge before we read a book and test kids on the book, which is also a multicultural piece, right? I mean, I just did a whole lesson on, what was it? The Loudest Winter's Nap or A Loud Winter's Nap. It's that book about the tortoise that tries to go to sleep and everybody wakes him up. The majority of my kids (laughs) have never seen snow. So we talked about snow. I brought in ice cubes for them to touch and play with, you know, about like, okay, this is what snow is because we don't have transportation to get up to the mountains. We can see it from our school, but the kids have never been there. So that's like what we talk about with background knowledge and how we can bring that perspective to teachers. So I really like what you said about looking at not just the assessments that we're doing, but looking about, you know, mm-hmm. how they're performing in the classroom as a whole. How they're performing year to year in the classroom as a whole.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to listen to the episode you're referring to because I love yeah. that. I've so much from, because we didn't used to. I think it's like a new thing, like maybe four years ago, we started having to attend the teacher's meetings and I learned so much. And then, like you said, we can identify so many things like, The teachers like literally sit there and go through assessment items. And they're like, I wonder why all my kids had a hard time with this. And it's so nice to see what the kids are being tested on or how they're being asked about certain things. And I remember just like noticing little things about, well, what are you really trying to get them to answer, especially in math? Like, is this a vocabulary test or is this a math test? Like, no, no, no. We're supposed to just be testing on the concept of equal. And I'm like, well, then why are you wording it this way? <laughs> you know, like I'll be thinking of my kids who will struggle with that wording, or even as simple as, like, why is it in black and white? That's gonna be really hard to figure out that you're talking about the apples and not the baskets, you know, things like that. That I'm like, okay, maybe we can get rid of the baskets for that one and just which ones are equal, just apples. Because I know so many of my kids would hyper-focus on the baskets looking different, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Things like that that you're, like, uniquely in the perspective to see. So that's really cool. Yeah, looking beyond the numbers. Right.
0: And, you know, which also brings us to your points that you've been making all along is, is it a vocabulary piece and they haven't learned the vocabulary yet? Or is it a true disability and they can't learn the vocabulary without intervention?
1: Right. And we have tools here. Yeah. But I forgot to mention throughout, and I meant to, there are tools out there. And one of my favorite ones is the Leaders Project. Yes! If you haven't been on there, I don't know if that's a strategy. But technically, it's a resource because you you yourself are digging deep into stuff. And if you go to any of our Instagrams too, you'll see that we love the Leaders Project. But they have breakdowns on every assessment and how they're biased <laughs> against different linguistic communities. And then they have resources about what to do about it. So they have their slam cards there for free, literal videos on how to do dynamic assessment. And then they have non word repetition task protocols on there to do exactly what you were saying, Caitlin, like figure out is this because they can't learn it. Is there something, another barrier going on here?
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that resource. It's my favorite leadersproject.org. They're the SLAM, the cards that they have SLAM cards. I forgot what that acronym stands for.
1: Something about language, but it's like Age narrative language. Stuff.
0: Language assessment measures. But that's what I use for my dynamic assessment is their pictures. They have a bunch for younger kids, older kids.
1: And it's well researched. And like I said, on YouTube, there's so many videos on them, like actually doing it just like when you're in grad school and you see another, your clinician supervisor doing something like they show you how to do yeah, it.
0: Yeah. Which is so great. If you are feeling uncomfortable with it, check out those videos for sure. For sure. All right. Ingrid, can I just have you recap your three, two, one for us?
1: Yes. So my three main things about this topic, number one was bilingual language acquisition is typical language acquisition. So there are bilingual people all over the world, and there are typical patterns, typical processes in being a bilingual person, and it shouldn't be immediately othered or immediately pathologized. So bilingual language acquisition is typical, and learn about it. Number two was dive deeper into the history of linguistic oppression in our country and what that means and how it shows up in spaces that we work in and how intertwined it is with how education sees bilingualism, how SLPs treat bilingualism. Number three was updating your language, just like some quick fixes, but you can dig deeper into them. Uh, The history of bilingual language education is rich and painful for a lot of populations. I think we talked about Dr. Medina on that part To look into his work. He's on TikTok, he's on Instagram, Dr. Jose Medina. And then, my two resources I went outside the box on this one and I mentioned yourself as a main resource your critical thinking skills, your clinician experience, your clinical judgment, and your ability to go out there and learn new things I think is one of the major resources that we have and that are underutilized we are all very capable smart competent professionals and scientists that went through some really really difficult curriculum and stringent graduate courses and we made it out and we can keep learning and we can keep growing and my other resource was connecting with bilingual slps out there i mentioned instagram but asha has also a directory if you want to do more professional connections but on Instagram, a lot of us are out there just sharing our story. And I think it's important for us to know that monolingual SLPs are out there. And they want to learn about us and our communities and they have our backs. So connect with us on Instagram as a resource. A lot of people are out there doing great things. And we talked about kind of sideways the work that the Leaders Project does kind of on that lane. And then my strategy is to look beyond the standard scores look beyond the numbers and look at what a whole global perspective can give you on a particular child standing in front of you beyond just what numbers are telling you.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Ingrid, so much for sharing a little bit of your story with us and just your passion for bilingual students And for your passion for educating and pushing our field forward, the research that you brought up, you know, regarding silent period and just I just really appreciate the questions that you ask and your perspective and lens through which you see things, because you really are one of the leaders that is going to push us forward and push us to be better at our jobs and to be more empathetic and caring towards our students or our clients, whatever setting we are in. So Ingrid, thank you from the bottom of my heart for just spending this time with us. I'm definitely inspired and I'm going to start using the upside down R when I transcribe. Yeah. Uh, that's the one thing that I did absolutely did not know. And I just, I really loved thinking about how I might be a linguistic oppressor and how I might create that safe space for my students who speak languages other than English to share their language. So I just, I really loved what you brought to us today and I'm looking forward to the next conversation that we have. So thank you so much, Ingrid, for your time today.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. Each episode
0: has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Use the unique coupon code for listeners of this podcast, LIFE20, for $20 off an audio course subscription. Audio course subscriptions give access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. Again, use the code LIFE20 to access more than 200 hours of audio courses for $59 a year. Visit speechtherapypd.com life for more information and start earning CEs today. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.